Hi, I'm Matt from Denver. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program is Scott Prendergast. He's the director, writer, and star of the new independent comedy film, Kablooey, uh, which follows the travails of a young man directionless in life who uh, goes to live with his sister-in-law and ends up working as a promotional mascot. Um, Scott, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank I think you. I probably did a terrible job of describing what the movie was about. No, so that was okay. I think that was pretty good. Since I think as an independent uh, film director, your primary job is uh, describing to people who may or may not care what your movie <laughs> is about. Um, it's often in an, in an effort to get them to part with like $50,000 yes. or something like that. How would you describe what Kablu is about? This is my pitch. Um, it's based on a true story. My brother's in the Oregon Army National Guard. He was in Iraq for a year and a half. And while he was in Iraq, I went and stayed with Here's his Here's my pitch. It's Benji meets Daddy Warbucks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so he was, I like the Benji movies, by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, in real life, I went and stayed with my sister-in-law and helped her to take care of my nephews. Imagine how much you would like the Benji movies if Benji was super, super rich. <laughs> if you, like you, you're an orphan, you get adopted, and it turns out that the person adopting you is not only Benji, but wealthy yeah, Benji. Exactly. That's like a dream come true. I know. That's kind of what happened to Nicole Richie. She was adopted by Lionel Richie. Yeah. If Lionel Richie was the dog, right. this would be a better story. Right, and cuter. Yeah, and cuter. So anyway, I went to stay with my sister-in-law and helped take care of my nephews, and they were horrible monsters. And uh, my revenge against them is I made a movie about how horrible they are. Were they horrible monsters, or were you a failure at taking care of them? Both. I was horrible. I didn't feel like I had the authority to tell my brother's kids what to do. And his wife was basically just collapsing and crying all day. So I and I was like, thought, let's have fun with my nephews. But they were just really freaked out because their dad was missing, and so... They acted horribly, and it just was horrible. It went horribly. And it just at a certain point, I just thought it'd be, it just got comical. Like, I was having fights every day with a three-year-old, and he was winning every day. So I uh, I just didn't know what to do. So that's Now, what about, the, uh, what about the other part of this? I mean, uh, the, the film is called Kablooey because that's the central mascot character, yeah. a giant, completely round-headed blue man or mm -hmm. man's costume yeah how did that fit into this real life story of you taking care of your uh taking care of your nephews because your your brother was overseas well it started out was i just got the idea for a man in a mascot costume i had a job in high school as a mascot i worked at the oregon museum of science and industry and i was super explainer and i had to dress up as a superhero with a giant question mark on my lycra body suited chest and explain <laughs> science exhibits to small children and it was hell. And uh, 
So originally I was making a movie about a mascot costume and then I just started to rope in what it was happening in my real life, which was I was taking care of my nephews. So it's about both. I don't know. It's a weird slapstick movie about a mascot costume and then a very dramatic movie about. What were the things about being in a mascot costume that you wanted to to mine for the purposes of, of the movie besides just the the kind of fundamental absurdity of a big giant mascot costume. I think the thing about a mascot costume is amazing is that you are anonymous. You are standing there with people, but they aren't treating you like a person and they will talk about very personal things right in front of you. Like people will start having personal discussions in front of you, but because you're behind, they can't see your face. They just, Oh, whatever. They don't care. You know, you're whatever. They'll say whatever in front of you. And I had read an article once with, you know, Lauren Graham is on Gilmore girls. Yeah. I read an interview with her once where I guess she played Minnie Mouse. She either worked at Disneyland or Disney World or something, and she was Minnie Mouse for a while. And she said it took her a month to realize she didn't need to smile when people took her photo <laughs> because she was inside a costume and Minnie Mouse is always smiling. So, and that just the idea that there's something else going on, that these people inside these costumes have got their own lives and their own problems, and, you know, they're doing, God knows what they're doing inside those costumes. So, uh, the idea that there's someone on the inside of there doing, living out an entire world, which is not reflected by his outside appearance. I have a lot more that I want to talk about the movie, but first I want to talk a little bit about your career. Um, you for a while performed, um, as an improviser for quite some time as an improviser. You trained at the, uh, at the groundlings, uh, one of the famous comedy schools of the United States. Um, how did you go from being an improviser to becoming a filmmaker? I did improv comedy all through college, and then I came out to LA and did the Growlings, and then I went to New York and was doing my own improv comedy show. I wanted to do more experimental improvisational comedy. The Growlings was kind of more on a path towards getting on Saturday Night Live and being an actor, and I wanted to do really weird improvisation where... The Groundlings is a school that focuses, um, that on, has a reputation for focusing on developing characters. Yep, it's a char- it's it's a it's a funnel for Saturday Night Live. They are literally training you to develop characters and develop sketches, and you know, uh, it's it's basically the farm team for Saturday Night Live. And I wanted to do weird. And the longer you go in the Groundlings, the less improv you do. And I wanted to do more and more and more improv where. You know, I wanted to do improv where you're playing several people at once. You're doing all sorts of bizarre. I had seen this show called The Chris Hogan Show, which was out of Chicago. And it was a turning point in my life. I saw this show and I thought, this is what I want to be doing. So I ended up doing this one-man improv comedy show in New York called Unman Show. And it's a parody of one-man shows, basically. Because one-man shows are horrible. Like, I hate hate one-man shows because it's like... Always some white guy from Yale playing an old black lady from the South and, you know, talking about issues and cancer. And I just, I hate it. So this show was me just making fun of that. But what I would do was I would come out on stage and talk to the audience and do an improvised monologue. And then whoever in the audience spoke back to me, I would uh, get information from them without them knowing it. And then I would play them in the show. So I would talk to like four people in the audience. And then I would do a show where I took their four lives and intertwined them in a little soap opera. And I'd play all four people. So I was doing that show for two years in New York, and it's very exhausting to do an improv show for an hour and a half by yourself. And this uh, producer named Anthony Bregman, who produced Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, he was at a company called Good Machine at the time. He came and saw my show, and he said, you know, you're improvising these shows every night. You're making up an entire show, and at the end of the show, it's gone, and you have nothing. You know, it's all over. That's what improv is. It's a you know, fleeting moment in time. He's like, you should be writing some of these things down. You should be making short films. 
and uh, I had always wanted to make movies. That's what I. That's my whole objective was I want to make movies. So he and I made a movie for sixty bucks, where I just wrote a script where I played four people, and we shot it in six hours, and that was how I got started. And one of Ang Lee's editors would come in on the weekend and edit with us, and I made this little short called Group Therapy, which is um, I think it's only available on my website. And then, and then, um, and then I made another film called Anna's Being Stalked for a thousand bucks. We shot it on the weekend. I made it with Gabriel Rhodes, and uh, we got into Sundance with it. And uh, that sort of started off my career. And then I just sort of gradually was leaving improv behind and starting to make more and more short films. And then I wrote my first feature, which is Kablooey. Filmmaking and improv are very, very different in a lot of ways. Um, not least of which that, uh, not least of which is that, you know, at its, at its heart, I mean, perhaps not in the case of one man improv, but at its heart, improv is often about kind of letting go of control um, whereas, you know, when you're a filmmaker, especially if you've written and directed and starred in your own film, it's about executing a vision and having a lot of people there to execute your singular vision. What were the skills that you learned as an improviser that translated to filmmaking? What were the things that actually turned out to be useful for you as a filmmaker? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think that... Filmmaking is all about preparation and all about organization and scheduling. And I'm a really hyper-organized person. So in a way, the the way I would make the movie is that you just – you organize everything to death. You just schedule it and shot list it and storyboard it and be absolutely prepared so that in the moment, you can do whatever you want. You have the freedom. The more organized you are, the more freedom you have in the moment. And basically, when you're making a low-budget movie for you know around a million dollars – it's all about improvisation because every minute is a compromise. You know, like, okay, well, uh, the, we couldn't get the birds, so, you know, we have an alligator. Or, like, you know, this actress is sick, or we couldn't get that actor. Or instead of, you know, a barn, we're shooting in a shopping mall. Or, like, all the ice melted. Like, so you're constantly rolling with it. Like, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Like, you're constantly having to answer questions on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. And that's – when I was making the short films I made, I made all for, like, a 1000 bucks in my apartment. And – it's nothing but compromise because you can't afford anything. So, you know, you write it to take place in Grand Central Station, but you will end up shooting it in your apartment because you can't afford Grand Central Station or you can't, you know, it's all guerrilla. So you're always compromising every minute. And so then when we got to the feature level, it helps to just be able to think on your feet. Like, you know what it is you need. Like, uh, you know, like if you, all you really need is a scene between these two people and you wanted to set it out on a boat, on a river. But you can't get on the boat. You can't get in a river. Okay, well, fine. Well, what can you do? You still just want a moment between these two people. Can they be sitting in a car? Can they be over here? Like, I'll give you a good, a good example. So in the end of Kablooey, uh, one of the characters in the script uh, is leaving town on a bus. It's a big, like, trailways bus. And the day we were supposed to shoot it, the bus arrived, and all the windows were tinted black, and you couldn't open them. And the whole point of the end of the movie was he's sitting on the bus and we're outside the bus watching him go by. And he sticks his hand out the window and feels the air running through his fingers. And you couldn't open the bus windows and the bus windows were tinted black and you couldn't see into the bus. And it just killed the end of the movie. Like we were, And so instead we said, all right, well, what can we do? So you're improvising. You know? It's like, okay, well, what, what, what do we actually need? We just need to show him leaving town. We want his hand out a window. Okay, so what if we had a car? So we went looking for a car in a parking lot and we found a blue Volkswagen Beetle that was the same color as Kablooey. And we just used that instead. So it's like, 
improvisation helps you uh, when you have no money. I mean, you, it's just constantly overcoming obstacles. Things come up and you can't – things you can't deal with, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. So you're constantly rolling with it. What can you do? You're making the transition into even a, an astonishingly low-budget film like this one still can cost a million dollars-ish. When you're making that kind of movie, what were the toughest skills for you to learn as a as a first time feature director? I think the hardest thing for me was learning to give up control and letting other people help you because I'd made all these short films where I did everything, where I would you know write it and direct it and cast it and edit it and produce it in my apartment, and then you can't do everything. If you try and do everything in the movie, your movie will suck. So it's and so here I'll give it. Here's another good example. So they said to me, "We have to hire a production designer." So I was terrified because for me, the look of the film, it's all about the look of the objects. And I made this short film called "The Delicious," and like I repainted my entire apartment so that it, the walls would be gray and the mirror was simple and no, no frame. And you'd see this guy come in in a red suit. And then with, and I was worried that someone would take away the design element from me on Kablooey. And I was. What if, what if I didn't like this person? What, what was their design going to be like? I mean, it's so important to me. How can you hand off something so important to somebody else? I wanted to keep everything and do it all myself. But then when you learn is there are people who this is their job and they are a thousand times better at their job than you will ever be at their job. And so I found this production designer named Walter Barnett who sat with me, listened to what I wanted, and then took what I wanted and made it better than I ever could have made it. And it was the process of learning to let go of things like – Okay, well, here's the production design. You know, I'm giving you all the information that I have about what I want, and now you take it and make it better. And he did an amazing job. I mean, the movie—it still looks like a low-budget movie, but the look of it is—he uh, did a beautiful, beautiful job. It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Scott Prendergast. He's the writer, director, and star of the indie film Kablooey. We'll have more with Scott in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you want a taste of the lighter side of MaximumFun.org, try searching for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes or visiting our blog and clicking on Jordan Jesse Go. It's an irreverent talk show for children of all ages, except for children. And it's absolutely free via podcast from MaximumFun.org. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Scott Prendergast, is the writer, director, and star of the independent comedy film Kablooey. You can find out more information about its staged release online at kablooey.com. You shot the movie in Austin, Texas, which is an unusual place to shoot a movie. How did, first of all, was that your original intent to shoot it in Austin? And and second, how did shooting it in Austin uh, affect the film? Well, we wanted to shoot it. it. It took place in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, really, because that's where my family is. But I wanted to shoot it somewhere that was wide open and desolate and was watching a lot of uh, – um, what's the name of the guy, uh, the movie um, Badlands? Uh, uh, Terrence Malick. A lot of Terrence Malick movies. And so Badlands and the one with Richard Gere, Days of Heaven, and just wide, wide, wide open dry spaces, lots of blue sky – and just desolation, isolation, wide open spaces. And we went scouting a bunch of different cities that had uh, in states that had production incentives. Texas had the best look. It just looked amazing. Austin had this beautiful 
wide open feel. We found that office building, this amazing giant office building that happened to have an empty wing that they let us take it over. And uh, so Austin had the right look. It's not supposed to take place in Austin. It's just supposed to take place in anywhere in America. But Austin had the right look. And then it was just great to shoot in Austin because Austin is just a really fun place to be. And there's a lot of film going on in Austin. There's a lot of independent film in Austin. There's a lot of acting and resources in Austin. And then also the nightlife in Austin is amazing so there's a lot of emptiness in the movie and especially when you have uh, a central character who's often dressed in an absurd blue costume um that emptiness becomes really significant tell me why you wanted that in the film i don't know that's a question you should ask my therapist like (laughs) i i just wanted it to be for me the movie is all about People not being able... This sounds so dorky and independent filmy, and if I heard myself saying this on a radio show, I would not go see this movie. But (laughs) I I wanted it to be about people not being able to connect, as stupid as that sounds, as TV movie-ish that sounds. But, like, you know, the movie's all about this guy who gets trapped inside this costume. And the theme of the movie, for me, you've seen it, is there's a big scene at the beginning with a laminating machine. So, like, in a way, have you ever spent any time with a laminating machine? Yeah, you know, I actually laminated. I was thinking of the time I spent with a laminating machine. when <laughs> I, I bought a laminating machine from eBay to print Maximum Fun Club cards for The Sound of Young America a couple nice. of years ago. Spent a lot of time with that. I mean, a, ma- a laminating machine is amazing. It's a, it's, it'll it, laminate anything as long as it's anything. flat. Yeah, and it's like, it really is like, like living in a town where it's Christmas every day. Yeah. So, <laughs> because you take things that are old and gross and weird and then suddenly they're magically encased in plastic. So my own mother went through a period of laminating <laughs> everything. She's not all the way off it, but she has laminated crap all over everywhere. Yeah, it's a joy. It's a scientific joy. It's like it's amazing. So, but the theme of the movie is that this guy who's he's sealing all these things off and then he himself gets sealed off from the world inside this big costume. Again, if I heard myself saying this in a radio show, I wouldn't go see this movie because it sounds dorky, but it's not a big thematic movie. Uh but mostly people who listen to this show are jocks and they're going to hate, hate all this dork they're gonna stuff. They're going to hate this. So there's a lot of naked teenage girls in this movie. Really, okay, that's what cool. it's about. Um, and we of, laminate them. A lot of so, bros. Yeah. Just bros being bros, you know? <laughs> so, um, but you know, like in the end of the, at the, end of the movie when uh, Lisa Kudrow touches his arm and it's the first time he has like human contact, it's all about just emptiness and people feeling separate from each other and... I don't know. I just like I. I think it's probably just because I like movies where there's just giant empty rooms, giant huge empty spaces with one person in them. It just looks cool. There, I mean, there are interesting resonances uh, that I saw between the corporate headquarters where your character goes to work is completely empty and uh, it's an almost but not quite failed dot com. Right. Uh, where the corporate uh, corporate campus, they call it, is largely empty. And in fact, his job is to try and fill it. And in order to try and fill it, he has to meet people. But the only place he gets dropped off to meet people is on the side of the freeway. The, <laughs> of course, you know, functionally, naturally alienating right. place with people in their cars that are naturally alienated by the fact that they're in their cars. And Lisa Kudrow's character, uh, who plays the sister-in-law, is alienated from her husband, who's, you know, overseas fighting in a war. And these kids are alienated from their mom, who's completely emotionally disconnected from everything that's going on right. around. It's uh, it, now I'm making it sound really sad. It's bleak. Well, it's a it melan- is a little sad. It's a melancholy. 
It's melancholy and <laughs> it's, it's a comedy. It's mostly about melons. It's about melons, really. I think it's about melons. That one was for the bros out there. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, getting Lisa, Lisa Kudrow to be in the movie and her performance. Um, she's an actress who is obviously best known for being on Friends, and her character on Friends was chipper and i think her chipperness has defined her public persona in in large part um this is a character who is quite the opposite of Mm. that tell me why you thought she would be the person to play this role well um i think it's funny that she's known for playing phoebe on friends but then she did this movie the opposite of sex where suddenly everyone saw her in a different light suddenly she was this somewhat unhappy it's a very unhappy, dramatic part, and she's brilliant in it, and I think it changed everyone's perceptions of what she can do. And she's a brilliant, brilliant actress. So um, for me, I wrote this part. It's based on my actual sister-in-law. So I, I felt it's a very personal thing, and when you're going out to find an actress to play a part that you've written based on your own life, you know, it's a very delicate, scary process. Like, well, what do we? What if we end up with some, you know, who are we going to get? Like, who's going to be available? And... Uh, we were originally told that Lisa was unavailable because she was doing another movie. And then, and then suddenly by the time we were actually ready to shoot, uh, the other movie was finished and she was available. And I, the reason that I wanted her to do it is because I knew that she could make it funny, even though it's a sad dramatic part, I still knew she could make it funny. And in the beginning, she's just like, just so comic. Like she's so rude to my, she's so mean to me in the beginning of the movie. She's just so like hostile and she hates me. And, um, and she, it's just funny. And also, and also, <laughs> the most amazing thing about Lisa is I didn't really have to do much. I didn't really have to give her much direction. She just nailed it. You know, she just read the script. She got it. She came in on set, and it was like she just suddenly was my sister-in-law. She played it. She she got all the nuances. She understood exactly what was supposed to be funny and what was supposed to be sad. And there's a scene in the movie where, uh, as you've seen it, she's walking down the street, and she's just. It's a long a minute and a half shot of just her face. The camera is like a foot from her face and she's walking down the street. There's no dialogue. And in the script it says she walks down the street and every emotion plays across her face and then she bursts into tears. And in that, and, and her character is not a very sympathetic character. She does a lot of negative things. And in that moment she has to win the audience back. You know, she has to prove to, she has to make the audience care for her again. So, so that's kind of a weird thing you hand an actress a script. You know, it says, okay, here. Um, and in this scene, um, every emotion plays across your face and you win the audience back and you burst into tears. And it's like, you know, it's not like an easy task to do. And she nailed it. We had to do that. We took, we did four takes of that scene. And every single time she was perfect and brilliant. She's a brilliant, brilliant actress. I heard that when, or I read you saying that uh, it, the, the casting process of her involved you writing her a three-page letter, yeah. letter, Dear Lisa Kudrow, please be in my movie. Well, actually, what the letter said was, Dear Lisa Kudrow, I'm supposed to write you a letter about my movie, Kablooey, but what I really want to tell you is how much I love the television show, The Comeback. And I wrote a three-page letter about how great The Comeback was. And at the end, I said, and I'm making this movie called Kablooey about my brother and sister-in-law. So uh, it was because of The Comeback. Like, The Comeback is shocking amazing uncomfortable brilliant television and she is so good in it and that i think it was because of that that i knew i mean you know whatever i just knew that she'd be great because of the, uh, because of happy endings and the opposite of sex because of the don ruse movies but she uh i wrote this letter about the comeback and then she just called me one day she read the script and she called me at home and i said hello and she said hi it's lisa kudrow um i love your script who are you and uh 
and I'll do it. What about casting yourself in the lead role? I read an, I read something. I, I read some review or other. I was looking at the reviews on the internet, and one of the reviews said, um, "Usually, when I see indie film written by, directed, and starring someone, I run in the opposite direction." And yeah. I and I thought, "Oh gosh, I kind of had that reaction too. Yeah. I was terrified of that too." Um, and I thought, yeah, I thought you were wonderful in the filmer. I wouldn't have invited you here. But um, why, why did you want to be in that central role? And what were the challenges for you of uh, being the main character in a feature film, which is something that you'd you'd never done before? Never done before, and and acting opposite high high caliber talent, which was terrifying. But from the reason that I wanted to do it was because I. I was an improvisational comedian. I made all these short films. And in the short films, I did everything. I wrote them and directed them and acted in them. And then I came out to L.A. and I had this agent. And he said, well, great. Now you're done with your cute little independent career. And now we're going to be making movies in Hollywood. So we want you to write a script and we're going to sell it to a studio. And just write a romantic comedy. And I, I spent a year writing a romantic comedy that I was going to sell. And I was going to be a Hollywood writer. And I was going to get start working in the studio system. And that script sucked. It was awful, and I just didn't. Um, I just didn't. I couldn't figure. And also, you realize there are people who've been spending their whole lives trying to write Hollywood romantic comedies. And so, you know, I had one of those weird crises of confidence where I was like, "What am I doing? Like, what is it? Why am I? What? Why did I come out here? What am I? What am I trying to do?" And I knew that the only thing that would work for me was. I had to do what I'd always done. I had to make something for myself. I had to make a movie that I wanted, like the short films. I had to write something that I wanted to direct and I wanted to play the character based on my own life. So I just had this weird confidence from another planet, which was completely absurd. And everyone told me that I was insane. And I had a huge fight with my mother. She was like, this is never going to happen. And my agent told me this is never going to work. And everyone kept saying to me, you're never going to get a movie made where you write and direct and star in it. And also, you know... I mean, it's true. Most movies where the writer, director, star—they're awful. They're all, it's like, like it's like one-man shows. Yeah, it's I was about like, to say it's like one-man shows. It's like yeah. one—it's ma- just like one-man shows, where it's like a very self-important film about a rabbit that has herpes, but he has to smuggle drugs to save his mother, the transvestite. Like, but I'll say in this case, when you changed hats to change characters, I thought it was just an absolutely captivating transformation. Oh, <laughs> remember when you went from Ben Franklin to George Washington because yes. you went from the tri-corner yes. to the small rimmed glasses? I know. I'm glad you picked up on that. Not a lot of people catch that. People just think you're playing a generic founding father. Mm-mm, no, no, no. It's, it's many nuanced characters right, there. Right, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm playing all the founding fathers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Even I, the second rate ones. Yeah, even the lower, you know. Uh, you know, ones who are <laughs> the minor fathers, the founding stepfathers, if you will, <laughs> um, the founding surrogate fathers. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I had, if I was going to make it, I would have to do it in the way that I knew how to do things, which was make something for myself. And also it was around the time of Miranda July's movie, me and you never when we know. And when you see that movie, she is the, most captivating person in that movie. And it's because she is the embodiment of the tone of her movie. The tone of her movie is slightly quirky, sad, but very real and very uh, winning. And you really feel for her. She's very empathetic. And she is the embodiment of her tone. And like, if she hadn't been in that movie, it'd probably be pretty good. But without her, that movie, she's, she's brilliant in that movie. Her performance, just seeing that weird quality of, 
just her, just who she is and the way she looks and the, what she wants to do. And I, and, and I felt, <laughs> I felt like that I wanted to be the embodiment of the tone in my movie. I don't know. I wanted to do what she had done and blah, blah, blah. I mean, why not push yourself forward? You know, like nobody else is going to be out there in the world being like, you should be in a movie. Like everyone is out there <laughs> saying you should not be in a movie. So, uh, and I, and honestly, you know, if Lisa Kudrow hadn't agreed to be in the movie, I might not have been in the movie. I think when I got the deal to make the movie, they said, okay, great. Well, because I went in and I was like, well, here, here are these short films that I've made, and I was in them, and one of them is this, on the Wolfen DVD, and it got a lot of press, and and here's the script, and I want to play the guy, and they'd said, well, okay, you can be in the movie, but you're going to have to get a really big actress to play the sister, and I think they were thinking, well, you know, some big actress is going to say yes to the script, but she's going to say, he can direct the movie, but I'm not acting opposite him. But Lisa Kudrow just came in and said, yeah, great, I, I watched the shorts, I love it, I'll do it, you, you, I, I want to be directed by you, I want to act with you, so... And of course, then I was terrified and acted like a complete boob around her for the first two weeks. And now, what, two years later, three years later, you're uh, going to be the co-star of the next Die Hard movie. That's right. The next Die Hard. Die Hard 7. Die Hard in a candy factory. Die Hard Candy. Die Hard Candy. <laughs> <laughs> I believe is what it's called. Yeah, it's Madonna's doing the theme song. Right. So she's taking the Hard Candy album as Die Hard Candy. It's going to be, I mean, you know, it's a, it's it's going to be a jump, but I think we're really pulling something together very special. Bruce Willis is going to be playing Bruce Willis. Yeah, well, Bruce Willis is playing Bruce Willis, but it's like, uh, you know, we're getting several people to play Bruce Willis. It's going to be one of those things where a bunch of actors play Bruce Willis. Some of them will be with Bruce Willis, and some of them won't be. Some of them surprising. Some of all of them highly credible. Yes, very highly credible. Extremely, maybe too credible. We're having a problem with credibility, too much credibility in that movie. I it's going to be understand amazing. that. You shouldn't have cast Jim Lair. From you know, the news hour. You know, people say that, but when you see his work. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on The Sound of Young America. It was really fun to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Scott Prendergast's new film, which he wrote, directed, and in which he stars, and which is really uh, quite lovely and very funny, uh, is called Kablooey. It's in a stage release all across America, and uh, you should look out for it in movie theaters. What's the website? Kablooey.com. Kablooey.com. We open in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, and Austin, and, and L.A. Did I say that? Is Portland just so that your parents can come? Portland? That's the plan. <laughs> so my sister-in-law can cry in shame while everyone she knows goes to see the movie. It's sort, of, it's sort of like being being on your first indie rock tour. You just try and book dates where you know you can invite a lot of friends. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, no. It's because uh, they wanted to open up in a smaller you know, indie city. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Great. Thank you. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our intern behind me is Chris Bowman. He comes from Canada. You can visit us online at MaximumFun.org, where you will find our blog, our other shows, which you should really give a try to if you haven't before, and uh, all kinds of other cool stuff, our discussion forum, that kind of thing. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me directly at jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>